Hello, wonderful people. Welcome back. My guest today is Keith Campbell. He's a professor of psychology at the University of Georgia's Franklin College and an author. He specializes in narcissism, which is a word that everyone throws around now in 21st century with smartphones and selfies and social media. But what does it actually mean? What's the psychology of it? How do you study it? So today, expect to learn what the dark triad is, or how narcissists and psychopaths are linked, what social media's influence has been on the uptick of narcissism, why you might want to increase narcissistic tendencies, and much more. We get into a ton of other stuff. I've been talking a lot about the um, men's rights red pill movement. We get into some of that today and some wider things to do with what it means to lead a meaningful life. Keith's a, a really, really interesting fella. If you enjoy the episode and you want to buy his book, as always, it is linked in the show notes below. And if you use that link to go and buy anything by any of the authors, you'll be supporting this podcast at no extra cost to yourself, just an extra cost to Amazon, which is brilliant. In other news, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Nature's Fix. Nature's Fix are where I go for my specialist supplements if I want to get some 5-HTP to improve my sleep and act as a serotonin precursor, if I need to get some curcumin, which I used heavily during my Achilles recovery, if I want to go and get myself some collagen protein or any of the other slightly more complex, slightly more involved in technical products, including including the Adrenal Cocktail from Jigsaw Health, which I use every single morning, and their MagSooth, which I use every single night before I go to bed. All of that is available at naturesfix.co.uk slash modernwisdom. You can see all the products I use and recommend, and the code modernwisdom gets you 10% off all LipoLife and Jigsaw Health products. That's naturesfix.co.uk slash modernwisdom and use the code modernwisdom for 10% off everything. There is some stuff on there which is so awesome, really hard to get hold of in the UK. Uh, assistance for sleep, assistance for waking, some specialist types of protein powders and a ton of other things that I've really found are very useful and you can see everything. naturesfix.co.uk slash modernwisdom. But for now, it's time to learn about narcissism with Professor Keith Campbell. Talking about narcissism today, a word that gets thrown around quite a lot, like what is the correct definition of it and, and how does it manifest? Well, you're right. The term's used a lot. Um, the, the most basic sort of foundational definition is somebody who has a very positive view of him or herself, um, a lack of empathy, and a need for admiration. So that's that. like in a nutshell, when you talk about narcissism, you're usually talking about a positive self-view. You think you're better than other people. You have some challenges with forming close, caring, empathetic relationships with people. And you need people around to kind of boost you up, to bolster you, to admire you, to give you positive attention, et cetera. So that's kind of the general term. Um, when people are using it in the street, they're often using it in a bit of a pejorative way to describe an ex-boyfriend or an ex-boss or whatever. So it's, you know, so people don't really use it technically right. But then when you get into the psychology and the science part, there's really, you can break it down farther into really three different definitions of narcissism. Um, 
The one we're probably most familiar with is the personality trait. And when I say trait, I mean that this is something we all vary on. There's a continuum. Some are more narcissistic, some less, most people around the middle. There's a trait called grandiose narcissism, which is this um, sort of sense of self-importance and a sense of entitlement. But with grandiose narcissism, what you see is some energy and maybe charisma, sometimes charm and drive and ambition. So the, the more grandiose narcissist folks you meet are the ones that end up in, you know, in politics or in leadership because they have this drive and ambition. And they're often very likable people when you first meet them. And you don't see the, the darker, more toxic side of narcissism until later on. There's another form of narcissism, which is less familiar to most of us, but it's when you see more with counselors and clinicians and, you know, in the mental health world. It's what we call vulnerable narcissism. So these are people that have the same sense of entitlement, but rather than be more ambitious and energized, they're a little more nervous, have low self-esteem, a little more introverted, sometimes called covert narcissists or basement narcissists or in the closet narcissists because you have, and so you have a fantasy about being successful, but there's not really energy or drive to make that real. So, so, and so you, you can imagine if you think you're great and you're not out there engaging with the world, you, you have a tendency for depression and anxiety and loneliness because you're not getting what you need. So the more vulnerable folks end up in the clinical settings more. And then to make it even more confusing, there's a clinical or psychiatric disorder known as narcissistic personality disorder, NPD. And this is an extreme form of narcissism that's grandiose and a little vulnerable. And what happens is your narcissism gets so extreme, it impairs you in life. It either destroys your relationships because you can't have loving relationships with people or it ruins your work because you take too many risks or you're a terrible boss. So you can't listen to people or whatever. And then it becomes a, a disorder. But that's relatively rare. Where the confusion comes in is people say, you're a narcissist, and you're like, what do you mean? Do you mean I'm kind of a cool dude who's got a lot of girlfriends, or do you mean I'm kind of a loser at my mom's home on the internet trolling people trying to get attention, or do you mean I have some, I'm somebody with a clinical disorder who should see a psychiatrist and be treated? And so we, the, that's where a lot of confusion comes in is the different, the different definitions that are associated with narcissism. It's interesting that you can have one trait, one sort of source code, that is underwriting the way that someone is created. And yet when that tree starts to grow up, it can lean to one of a number of different ways and create a variety of shapes. That is a very interesting way to, to put it. And I think um, part of it is that that ego, that's if we think about the source code of like ego, I want attention, I'm better than people. If you If you pair that with somebody who's got some social skills and whose parents said, you're awesome, Keith, you're great. And who has some confidence, that person can become a successful sort of grandiose narcissist. But that same characteristics, but the person was maybe abused or traumatized. The parents, you know, not today, incredible trauma, but parents that were more cold and dismissive, who didn't have the social skills, ends up on this more um, vulnerable path. So you could see that idea how you could bend these different forms in different ways, but they're both very ego-based. I read uh, Robert Plowman's Blueprint last year talking about the influence of genetics on everything that we do with regards to behavior yeah. and i think that your findings with narcissism match up with what he said it's around about 50 percent is nature and 50 percent is nurture yeah that's um 
Plowman. It's funny. I remember studying his, him in graduate school. Um, have you read Blueprint? What? Have you read his new one? I haven't. No, oh, I, Keith, you would. It's really good. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, being honest, there is a couple of takeaways that you'll already have, and they are every trait has significant and um, sizable influence from our genetics. Like that's the the big red pill. But as you go into stuff like um, in adoption studies, weight is completely correlated between biological parents and not at all through the adopted parents, like which is crazy, especially when we live yeah. in a world that's a meritocracy. Um, but yeah, so talking about uh, yeah. genetic, about the genetic influence on narcissism. Yeah, so you find that pattern with narcissism that you, and so generally you're getting about 50%, like you're saying, about 50% is, is inherited. It might be, narcissism in terms of traits seems to be a little bit on the higher side, but it, you know, they're all about 50%. When you look at that other piece, about 10 to 20% is parenting, maybe 10%. So the parenting piece is never as important as people think. You know, the people think parenting is really shaping you. Parenting matters a lot. Your parents have to feed you and love you and do all these things, but they can't really shape you that well to be one kind of person or another. The other piece that that's really hard to predict, and this is about 30% maybe, is just what they call non-shared environments, just sort of the culture you grow up with, the friends you have, the weird random stuff that happens. And that seems to be what's going on with narcissism. So there is some genetics, but that's certainly not the whole story. And the other pieces are a bit hard to find. Why does it exist? Like the trait must have had an adaptive use. Why is it here? Yeah. Well, um, you can think about that. That's a hard question to answer. So there's a few ways to think about it. One is you can go, well, what are the benefits of narcissism? Where does it really benefit you? And when we think about evolutionary terms, we usually think about sort of resource gathering or mating. Those are kind of the big evolutionary questions. Narcissism is linked to short-term mating success. So people who are narcissistic are good at finding mates. Um, they're good at becoming leaders very quickly. So it has some maybe very short-term advantages. The challenge, and this is where it gets complicated with, with the evolutionary models, is if you're if you evolved in a small group, a tri, you know, we're talking 50,000 years ago, you got your group of 50, 100 people and you're the narcissistic jerk who's 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 hooking up with everyone else's spouses. They're going to kill you. I mean, that's just what happened. If you look at the hunter gatherer tribes, they'd, they'd have somebody in your family take you on a walk and you just wouldn't come back. There'd be a hunting accident. You know, there'd be. So these more psychopathic individuals were weeded out in those smaller cultures often. But you imagine when a culture gets bigger, you, you live in a big city, a big urban center, there's no check on ego, there's no check on narcissism, it, it thrives better. But I think that, that narcissism is really beneficial in sort of new situations in the short term where you don't see the benefit is in these long-term established relationships. It's it just not as useful. Yeah. So in a society or a, a community where you are held to account over longer periods of time, the narcissist is going to lose. But in shorter interactions, that sounds a lot like the way that psychopaths work, that they can never stay in a town for one for too long because they screw over people and they realize who they are. Are all psychopaths narcissistic? And how does narcissism it and psychopathy relate? Yeah, they're um, 
they're cousin traits in a way. What psychopathy and narcissism share is this interpersonal, we call it antagonism or interpersonal callousness, the willingness to take advantage of people and put yourself first, looking out for number one. So that's something that's very common with psychopathy and narcissism. Really, the difference is with narcissism, you get more of that interest in, in attention or positive feedback from other people. So often narcissists aren't as dangerous because they, they still want to be loved. Mm, um, yeah, so, okay. So, whereas, whereas the psychopath, the psychopath is simply out to get whatever they want at any cost, whereas perhaps there's a little bit more somewhere in the background there's an echo of a um virtue or in integrity even if that's only outcome based for exactly. the for the narcissist yeah so so the psychopaths i think of as more predatory like i mean and again these these things will like if i gave uh, a group of psychopathy measures and narcissism measures to people in a lab they're going to correlate very i mean they're going to correlate strongly they're cousin traits. And sometimes we talk about a dark triad of traits that include psychopathy, narcissism, and this other one, which is Machiavellianism, um, which is named after Machiavelli who wrote the book, The Prince. It's a, it's a characteristic of people who are really manipulative. So they're not necessarily attention seeking. They're not necessarily, they don't, they don't necessarily want to just steal stuff or get stuff. They're more manipulative, but they all share this core of antagonism or callousness or a willingness to exploit other people for your own ends. I wanted to dig into the dark triad. Reason being, the first time that I got introduced to it, I was reading a Meninism blog. So part of this red pill movement, the pro-men. So it's essentially a men's rights movement on this particular blog. And I found it fascinating. Some of the stuff that they put out was really interesting. And then there's an entire that there's reams and reams dedicated to cultivating dark triad traits. So they basically say that having those dark triad traits will allow you to be more resilient. Um, a lot of these people in these realms are perhaps divorced, perhaps um, involuntarily celibate, um, someone who maybe doesn't succeed socially so well. Yeah. Um, First off, what is? can you dig into the dark triad? And then secondly, can you imagine why someone in that situation would need it or, or even think about trying to develop it? That's really interesting. Um, and I'm kind of, it's kind of clicking when you say it. So I'm not, I haven't really thought this through, obviously. But when we talk about these dark triad traits, these are traits that, shore, uh, that share a core of darkness. And darkness in psychology, what we call low agreeableness or callousness or maybe trait antagonism. Maybe the easiest way is meanness. People are mean. So dark people are mean people. That's probably an easy way to say it. Say it. And there are different kinds of mean. Um, the challenge with men in relationships sometimes is you hear men say, well, assholes always get the girls. Yeah. Okay, so I'll be an asshole. Now, if you study what an asshole is, an asshole is somebody who is callous, low in agreeableness, and has dark traits. Basically, an asshole is right at the center of the dark triad. That's kind of what an asshole means. It's somebody who's a jerk, is antagonistic and mean, self-centered. Um, so people think that's what people want. That's not what people want. I mean, there's no research I've ever seen that says, you know what I really want is somebody who's just an asshole. That's really what I want in my life. When you look at the narcissism research and dating, 
people aren't, and I'll say women, but it goes both ways, obviously, but women aren't dating narcissists because they're jerks. They're dating narcissists because they seem confident and charismatic and attractive and exciting to be with at first. The problem is over time, when you're dating somebody who's charismatic and exciting to be with, you go, okay, now's the point in the relationship where we're going to get to know each other and be more emotional and talk about having kids. And the guy's like, nah, I don't really want to do that part in the relationship. Where'd you get that idea? I'm really kind of into me and into having fun. And it's cool to have you with me, but I, I didn't want to settle down. And then she goes, well, you're an asshole. Well, yeah, but I'm also kind of fun and charismatic. And you like that part of me. You like the part that makes me fun and charismatic. You don't like the asshole part. That's what you don't like about me. So the people, so guys watch this and go, my goodness, that woman's with an asshole. I'll be an asshole. <laughs> no, you should be charismatic and engaging and have a sense of humor. Take care of yourself and have some confidence. Don't be an asshole. But yeah. that message gets really distorted. But this isn't my area, Chris. So no, what do you think? Matt, you've, you've, I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's putting the cart before the horse. It's presuming that the emergent property of the narcissism, which is effective, needs to go. Actually, in fact, it's baby and bathwater. It's I need to be a narcissist <laughs> yes. in order to have the charisma. So there's a few things that you said at the, at the beginning of that little passage. Um, there's a quote from the Red Pill movement, alpha fucks and beta cooks. So it's that the alpha male will get it and she'll make rules for the beta that she breaks for the alpha. And all of this is built around this sort of cult of alpha maleness, right? And a lot of this, you would be fascinated to, by some of the Red Pill movement and Meninism blogs that are out there. R slash men's rights on uh, Reddit has a lot of this stuff on there. And um, yeah, it's it's interesting, especially upon reading your work, how the narcissism side of it has been utilized by people. It's been uh, glorified by people as a tool yes. that should be used, that should be cultivated because it's going to cause, especially a lot of these people, I think, have been hurt by women perhaps in the past or never had success with women, which has also caused them to be hurt. Yeah. Um, so by, by increasing that nar narcissism, they're increasing the distance between them emotionally, between them and the other people. And that's where the this blend that you said before of uh, vulnerable and grandiose. grandiose narcissism. So it's outwardly being grandiose because of inward vulnerability. I'm trying to protect myself from being hurt by seeming like I don't give a shit and never fully investing in people. That's interesting. So... So it makes me think of four things, and I'll probably forget the second. But... <laughs> First, when we talk about callousness, you know, you think about a callous, a callous works both ways, which I never think about because I think about callousness as I treat people callously, but also it means I can't feel as much. And what you're saying is these people are wounded and so they develop a callous, like I'm not going to let myself be wounded. Now, the reason we call vulnerable narcissism and grandiose narcissism, both narcissism is back in the psychodynamic days, the Freudian days, you know, you go back 50, 100 years, people thought that what was on the outside of you was almost the opposite of the inside. Just that they thought that's the way the mind worked. So that, gee, if you seem really confident underneath, you're probably weak. It doesn't really work like that in general life. There are people who are confident, there are people who are weak, and there's some people who are both. But most confident people are just kind of confident. 
But what you're describing is a very Freudian process almost where people are, they feel weak. They feel they can't succeed with women. They see other people are and they go, you know what I'm going to be? I'm going to toughen up and grow a shell and then enact in sort of an aggressive and confident way maybe. And that will convince women to like me and I can't get hurt because I've got this big shell around me. Yeah. It's that mimetic quality that we have, right? We're trying to reflect what we see with with people yeah i'll send you some i'll send you some article links once we're done i think you'd be really interested in looking at it very so my my chat with a lot of these when i think about so the other thing is alpha males now i um i i i don't get the alpha male thing so much i remember i was in africa and i looked at it i was looking at this group of gazelles and i was with this guy and he goes well here's the alpha what does the alpha do well the alpha spends a year guarding every woman in his harem from guys until he gets exhausted and dies in a year or two because it's being an alpha male it kills you i mean that alpha males in nature they they just kind of die out and the fact is humans we're much more balanced than that we don't really work with these really strong alpha hierarchies like a lot of other creatures do and so the idea of wanting to be an alpha male i'm like dude that's a lot to carry cult of personality now that term on the internet is thrown around by a very large minority of men in a particular type of thought pool as the pinnacle of what you're supposed to become as a man and i think another another part of it in terms of the alpha male thing is is just being confused about the metrics of success because the interesting thing with narcissism as far as I see it, and specifically with being an alpha male, is that outwardly you have all of the trappings of success. And because I'm never going to get to see your internal scorecard, it almost doesn't matter. So this ruse, I think, is promulgated in a number of ways. One, by people that are narcissists and alpha males having that outward success. Secondly, by them never seeming like they suffer with criticism, so they almost seem invulnerable to it. And then thirdly, that they will begin to believe their own bullshit after a while. But the bottom line, we don't know what Conor McGregor or Elon Musk or some alpha male red pill pickup artistry guy, what the thoughts inside of his head are like when they go to sleep on a nighttime. When you put your head on the pillow, yeah. no one gets to see that. But we we observe the objective metrics of success, the Instagram followers, the wealth, the girls. Yeah. In, in psychology, we have we call it sort of extrinsic or external values or motives or goals and intrinsic values and goals and extrinsic ones with narcissism the easiest way i remember this is sex status and stuff you want sex you want to have high social status and you want material goods that show people like i saw that mcgregor guy with his million dollar watch and it kind of looked cheesy man i'm a watch guy i didn't even like the million dollar watch but guy's got a million dollar watch looks cooler than I am. Um, but that's that. Um, but, but, it, but when you regulate extrinsically it, it, look, I'm not telling anyone not to go for it in life. Please go for it. Please be as much as you can. I've tried, you know, but know that when you start competing to be the best at sex status and stuff, one, you're always competing. You're never going to win because as soon as you get to the top, someone you're going to be knocked off and someone else will be. So that's just the nature of it. You've been in entertainment, you know, I've been in, you know, you just, this is the nature of it. You can't be on the top forever unless you're a country music star in the 50s in America. Um, 
and and you're going to get knocked off and you're going to die alone. And that's the worst part. You can't have love. And so what happens is you see guys that get, you know, they're my age and, and they're kind of like going, where's the love? I don't have any love in my life. Yeah, because you're you're an arrogant dick and you got all this great stuff and you got a million dollar watch, but you don't have any love. Yeah. And you can't buy that. You can't buy a happy family. You can pretend you have one. You can't pay. So there's this you get this really foundational loss in terms of emotional connection. And you know that's what, the cost. You know what else it is as well? Thinking further into this, a lot of the people who are proselytizing about the the virtues of being an alpha male are guys in their 40s or in their 50s or in their late 50s who are almost acting like these savant sages of masculinity who are t talking about how it should be done, but they're playing a game that someone 20 years their junior should be playing and by the time that you get to 50 you can't get in the mix with 21 year olds in a nightclub anymore you need a family <laughs> around you you need people that are, it, it doesn't scale that's a perfect way to look at it narcissism doesn't scale across a lifetime and all of the things that you do should compound as uh appreciating assets not depreciating ones um the equivalent for guys choosing girls is choose a girl that is beautiful it doesn't matter how hot she is Hotness wanes with age, beauty increases with age. I I like that way of um, framing it. And what you see with uh, these sort of the more dominant narcissist folks is they'll start one family and then they'll wait 10 years. And when they're 50, they'll just redo it. And then they'll wait 10 years and do it again. And so um, like I, my dissertation was on trophy spouses. So I was kind of interested in how <laughs> do you, you get know what my my Instagram bio is. As no. Aspiring trophy husband. <laughs> right you got who you, I, not a bad plan you know it works um but but the idea is that you kind of replicate this pattern over and over but you know by the time you're 60 and you got a one-year-old with the new wife it just looks i'm like oh my god that just sounds exhausting yeah. i mean so i um i just like I said, I love success. I'm, I love masculinity. I'm saying, go for it, do what you're going to do. But this alpha thing is just, I think it's a bit misguided. I agree. Um, what does narcissism have to do with mass shootings? You looked at Elliot Roger as an example. Can you talk about how manifest uh, narcissism manifested through him? Yeah. So, um, I, I'm going to, I'll step it back a, a second to, to Columbine, if that's okay. Cause that's really, um, where we started with this in the narcissism world. So if um, so, when I I was doing research, this is back in the '90s, and I was a, a doing a postdoc with a friend named Gene Twangy. We we're in our basement lab, and there was the shooting at Columbine, which in the U.S. was a big deal. This is these two boys went and shot up a school in Colorado, and then afterwards they said you know, I can't, Spielberg's going to make a movie about me or Tarantino and I can make anybody think anything I want. And we read this stuff and we're like, oh my God, these guys are using words straight off the narcissistic personality inventory. That's weird. So we started like, why are people doing these shootings? What's the point? So we started looking at it and what you see, and this is part of the story in these shootings, is you find people who are threatened, you get ego threat, they call it, or self-esteem threat or Jeff generally feel that they're not up to, they're not alpha males. Like in the case of Elliot Rogers, you know, this is a case in Santa Barbara with a guy who asked a woman on a date, she rejected him. He's like, no one, you know, 
everyone's rejecting me. I'm going to show him who the real alpha male is. And then he went and killed some of his friends. And um, so what happens is you see these these young guys. It's often guys, usually guys uh, that get ego threats. And then to establish dominance, what they do is go commit a mass shooting. They'll maybe write a manifesto with it. So I've read a lot of these they are very dark, but often the manifesto is about how I should be in charge of the world. It should work for me. Um, it, it Anyway, you see this pattern in a lot of those shootings. In the case of Elliot Rogers, I thought it was very interesting as well, because he was a, a kid who had a lot of money and power. His parents were very successful. He was a good looking dude. I think he had a BMW. He should have been able to date. He should have been able to function in the world. He couldn't. And his his way of, of dealing with that was to literally resort to mass shooting. He worked it out in his head that the best way for him to reestablish dominance in a world that didn't accept him was to go kill people. So that's where you you get that um, where you get that uh, narcissism school shootings is the shootings themselves are a way to to reestablish dominance. And often if there's a manifesto it's, or something, it's a way of becoming a great figure. And these people, like a lot of serial killers, they're high status, successful people. I hate to say successful, but they're famous um, because you can use murder to get successful. I wonder whether the alpha male cult that we've got at the moment is using sex, weaponizing sex in the same way. Well, I haven't won the world in the way that I think it should be should be won. Perhaps they don't have the compulsion to go shoot up a school, but they have the compulsion to use and abuse uh the the opposite sex or the same sex depending on i'm gonna guess there must be there must be narcissistic alpha males in the gay world as well i'd be really interested to any of the gay guys that are listening uh, i'd be really fascinated to know if there's more there you mentioned something just during that passage does narcissism skew male yes yeah it does grandiose narcissism uh skews male vulnerable narcissism is about 50 50 and the per and the personality disorder is about three quarters male. Wow, so that really yeah. is a, a male dominated trait, then. Yeah, it's the but but some of this is you know you you think about clinical diagnosis and they they tend to gender some diagnoses. So you know if the two people come in and a man they'll say well you're narcissistic and a little vulnerable and a woman they'll say well you're borderline and a little self centered. So sometimes they they will they will place people a little bit. I mean, there could be some gender, but but generally narcissism is a more masculine trait. How, how do you measure it? Well, if you're measuring it as uh, in a personality form, like if you want to take your own narcissism, or if I were doing a study, there's a bunch of scales. the The most common one is called the narcissistic personality inventory. You could Google it, and it's not you know it's forty questions. The most common form. Um, there's, there are other vulnerable narcissism scales, like the hypersensitive narcissism scale. There's a bunch of them for clinical. Uh, so when you do normal personality testing, it's called low stakes, meaning people will tell the truth because what do they care? They're just taking an anonymous survey. If you're doing clinical work, it's harder. Or if you're working in a, in a friend, like if you're working in a, in a, uh, a prison system, a forensic system, it's harder because people don't want to tell you the truth. So if you're going to a clinical setting and you're getting diagnosed, they might do a structured interview where they'll sit down and ask you questions and, and kind of go through it that way to, to do a more formal diagnosis. Mm. What's the narcissism recipe? <laughs> so when I think about personality traits, this is a bigger answer, but it, there's personality traits are 
kind of captured in language as adjectives. So whenever you use adjectives to describe somebody, you're often talking about personality. They're quick-witted and hot-tempered and a little zany. So those are all kind of personality traits. And when you when personality psychologists over the last decade, you know, starting with um, you know Galton and in, in your country, um, started trying to chunk these traits up, they said, well, let's start. Move, saying together, well, somebody who's creative and curious and zany, those are probably similar. Somebody who's nice and kind and caring, those are similar. Let's start chunking them up. When you do that, you end up with five traits. They call the big five. And so those big five traits, which are, I'm going to just tell you, I know, openness to experience, conscientiousness, or which is dutifulness, extroversion or energy, agreeableness or niceness, and neuroticism or instability. You know, so they spell ocean, if you ever want to remember, or canoe. Um, what you can do with those basic traits is you can combine them. I always think of like, you know, Mexican food. You go to a Mexican place, you're like, yeah, I want a taco or a burrito. It's the same ingredients. You just kind of organize them differently. And it's the same with personality. You take these basic ingredients and you organize them. So for narcissism, what you get is a big dollop of antagonism, kind of mean and self-centered. And then you add that extroversion piece to it. So you take, you know, low agreeableness and extroversion. That's a recipe for grandiose narcissism. Take that same low agreeableness or meanness or callousness, add neuroticism, anxiety, depression, and you end up with vulnerable narcissism. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's the idea that you can use these basic traits to make more complicated traits we talk about. A trait like psychopathy is really primarily just antagonism. It, it's really in the big five. It's just a big piece of that antagonism that's sort of carved up in a certain way. Yeah. So what this allows us to do as personality psychologists is whatever the trait is, we can take that trait, put it into big five terms, and then translate it into whatever trait we want. It's a bit of a Rosetta Stone for our traits. I mean, this is getting a little nerdy, but that's kind of how we do it. I get it. What's the goals and motives for a narcissist? Well, you know, it's really it really comes down in terms of the broader goals to sex status and stuff. That's where a lot of it can be framed into getting leadership positions, getting power, getting money, getting access to sexual Even for partners. the vulnerable one? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just they're just scared to do it. Mm. The motivational structure is the same, but they're but they don't have the drive. See, so in the and the old, you know, in the old psychoanalytic literature, they'd say, you know, to be really narcissistic, you have to be really talented or really attractive. Because if you're really attractive or really talented, people will let you get away with it. So people who are vulnerable have the they have the goals, they want to be successful, but they, they it's scary for them and pain. So let me give you a specific example: selfies. <laughs> so Selfies, you know, we started studying selfies when this, you know, five, 10 years ago when this, I guess it's been about, yeah, it's almost 10 years since people started taking selfies. It's been a while. Um, and what we found with selfies are people who are grandiose narcissists. They take selfies very easily because they like themselves. They're happy to show their abs. They're more full body and they're more alone. And they, and they don't have any problem sharing selfies. It's just kind of what they do. People who are vulnerable want to take selfies too, but when they do it, they don't really like what they see. They get anxious. It's not as much fun for them. So it's very challenging. So if you talk to influencers who have more vulnerability, 
And maybe you do. I don't I haven't talked to that many influencers. Um, but when you talk to people, it's very painful. They're like, I had to put this picture out of myself on Instagram. I wasn't sure if I was hot enough. It's I want to be hot. But it's a real struggle for me. So that's the problem with the vulnerability is is like you you want to be out there, but you've got all this concern and neuroticism that's kind of keeping you back. Yeah. Let's let's talk about social. I've got I've got some thoughts in my mind about that that I really want to dig into, but I want to kind of close the loop to the social media world at the moment. Have you guys been tracking narcissism through the advent of social media? Has there been a statistically significant increase? Can we say that social media is feeding narcissism or is it just is it just enabling narcissism? So it's a little bit more complicated than that, I think, historically, because when we first started looking at this and, and Gene Twang and I wrote a book called The Narcissism Epidemic like a decade ago into 2000, into the Great Recession. So it's probably 12. And at that point, we saw narcissism really spiking up with college students and social media. And I really thought that there was this dynamic feedback loop going on where the social media is really encouraging narcissism. And maybe it was. But then what we started noticing is we started seeing these very negative sort of side effects of social media, especially in girls, where they'd report a lot of social comparison processes. So like I am online and I look at my friend and she's so happy and looks so attractive and I'm not. So I feel bad or fear of missing out like FOMO. So people get on social media like God, these people are so happy and I'm not at the party. And so. It's almost like social media started making people depressed in a way. And we saw a change of uh, people go from Instagram to Finsta, fake Instagram to Snapchat to TikTok. So they're kind of moving away from the social pressure. Um, at the same time, when you look at the research on narcissism and social media, it seems to be self-reinforcing, which is kind of what you hinted at, that people are narcissistic, use it, and it reinforces their narcissism. So I put out my Insta post, everybody likes me. I go, God, I'm pretty hot. I'm going to do it again. That's reinforcing, but it's not turning you into a narcissist. It's sort of reinforcing what's there. So my guess is there's a lot going on here. It's individually reinforcing, but at the cultural level, it's having these these side effects that aren't necessarily predicted or aren't always feeding in the direction of narcissism. Jonathan Haidt's work on that in the coddling of the American mind was so scary. There's for the people that haven't seen it, there's essentially a graph that talks about is it anxiety disorder and depressive sort of episodes amongst teenage girls? Like precisely yeah. the ones that you want to give sympathy to. You know, like a thirteen year old girl that feels anxious and depressed. It's just, you know, you just yeah. want to make them feel better. Yeah. Um and it's the advent of Instagram, 2012, I think. And yeah. you just see it's yeah. like yeah. a line in the graph, like Tesla's stock price last year. There's just this yeah. line in it's the graph. Pops, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And it just lifts off. One of the interesting takeaways from that was to do with the fact that girls use words and more social backstabbing techniques in order to deal with disputes. And the r hypothesis that... Jonathan suggested for why that wasn't happening with guys is that guys will just throw hands and then pick themselves up off the floor and sort of then you're best friends with the guy that you just had a fight with five minutes later but because girls don't necessarily have that physical outlet naturally that has caused the increase in depression and anxiety I I think there's that you know sometimes people talk about like cyberbullying or whatever that you can get those indirect negative 
uh, effects. And the other thing to add to what you're saying that makes it even worse is in the old days, if everyone hated you, you could move to the next town and change your name and start school again and no one would know who you were. But now, you know, your social identity follows you. So these kids, it's very hard to escape some of the bullying and stuff if it gets bad. So it, it can be dark, yeah. Think and, about, and, yeah. Th- let's think about the three S's, the sex status and stuff, which I love to remember what narcissism hap- what narcissism's there for. Social media has permitted everybody to ubiquitously communicate their sex, their status and their stuff. Here's a photo of me with my girlfriend wearing my brand new watch and I've got an extra 100 followers than I did yesterday, which is 10,000 more than you've yeah. got. Yes. Yeah, I, um, I've described it this way and I don't know if it makes sense, but I'll try it with you, is Bitcoin and those kind of ne- crypto networks work on mining. So you have people that are actually you know, using computer power to solve algorithms and that would keeps the network going. With something like Instagram, what you need are influencers. Those are people who are out there getting, you know, who are attractive people who are getting attention. Mining attention, yeah. Mining, you need attention miners. And they're the ones keeping the network going. If it weren't for people out there attention uh, seeking attention, the networks would drop. But Facebook, rather than paying those people directly in Bitcoin, like like you know, cryptos do, they 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 do it indirectly. They pay dopamine. you in, in uh, dopamine. <laughs> <laughs> they pay you in dopamine, sort of like being paid in cocaine. You know, when yeah. it stops, it's yeah. really bad. Yeah. And so that's so that's how I look at these systems that they're they're that narcissism is kind of integral to the function. It's not the whole thing because rage is really an important thing. But if you look at what's shared, it's, it's rage, humor, ego. And, uh, and that's how these networks are built. So they need, I mean, Instagram, you need influencers for the network to work. And they're the miners of the network. So they're kind of like ego networks in a way. Did that make sense? Absolutely. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, I like that. So, what I want to try and talk about is the relationship between talent and narcissism. So what I find particularly interesting is that narcissism with talent comes across as justified charisma. Conor McGregor is a good example of this, right? You know, for all that he lost a couple of fights recently, one against the greatest boxer of all time and one against arguably the greatest MMA fighter of all time, he's a guy that is just brimming with extroversion and charisma. Is there some narcissist? I don't know whether many people would call him narcissistic. However, let's do a thought experiment. And in another world, Conor McGregor has all of the same extroversion and charisma that he has, but has lost every single fight that he's ever had. His charisma and extroversion haven't changed at all. The things he's saying are the same. It's the justification based on talent, which has... And yet yeah. far more people would accuse that version of him of being a narcissist. What's going on? Right. There? It, because I think if you're if you're successful enough, people think you deserve it. So Colin McGregor is a great fighter, so he can be an arrogant jerk. Um, I'm not saying that's true, but that's you know, that would make sense. Like, yeah, you know, you're a king. You can be an arrogant jerk. You 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 just you got the status to do it. But if you don't have the status, then you're just a poser. You're worse than me, and you're acting like you're Conor McGregor. You're, I mean, you're not him. You're worse than I am. I hate you. So I, there is that that piece of status. But the other thing that I think is important is that you can be really successful in athletics, or any, and you don't have to be an arrogant jerk. 
And in fact, um, people will like you even more if you're not an arrogant jerk. And your career is going to be better in the long term because you're going to build relationships on the way. And then when you, you know, when he transitions from being a fighter into something else, if he had relationships and he's maybe got two, he does, he's got two kids now. Yeah, yeah he's got a family, yeah. wife, married, two kids. Yeah, I, I, I should say I don't know the guy, but I mean, it's it's just if you're that arrogant, it's hard. It's going to be harder to transition when you're no longer the celebrity and celebrity is very short. So there must be. There must be a way to weaponize or to utilize and have charisma, extroversion, uh, self-belief, outwardly focused without it being narcissism. Where does that line lie? Yeah, I, I, I think it's really the interpersonal piece. So you can be confident and extroverted, but you walk into the gym and instead of like you're instead of saying like, I can do better than you, you're like you go to the weak guy and you go, hey, let me help you out. Like, dude, McGregor helped me out at the gym. Yeah, he's a good guy. He kind of took the time to help me out. And all of a sudden, everyone's talking about what a legend you are. So you can be nice. You don't have to be, you know, you don't, you're the best, like everyone knows, you don't have to prove yourself. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I mean, being at the University of Georgia, which is, I mean, you wouldn't know in England, but we have a lot of world-class athletes, just nature of a college, big football program. I just I'm not an athlete guy. I'm not into it. But I know a lot of great athletes, a lot of really nice people that are athletes that are world famous. They're good people. You can be competitive on the court and not off the court. You know what I mean? So you can turn it on and off. But the challenge is that people can't do it. Um, Anyway, there's a spectrum. There's a a paradigm that I learned about last year uh, from Kyle Eschenroder wrote this wonderful blog piece and he talks about four things people think they want to want in life and he talks about how that's something that you don't actually want and one of them he talks about to do with fame and he says most people want to be someone what you should strive to do is to do something you don't want to be someone you want to do something and it seems like a lot of uh, upon reading your book a lot of the um pain which is felt by narcissists is to do with unlived potential a gap between what they feel like the world should be giving them and what they're getting but obviously part of that is down to what are you giving the world a reason to give you like your actual output should be reflected back with the adoration and all of the rest of it um but what we see you know coming from a reality tv background which i've been in that is the epitome of instantly becoming someone without having done anything so yes. people are given this inflated sense of self. And I think you, you talk about it is ego inflation. They're given yeah. this inflated sense of self. But I think that it's incredibly hollow. I, you know, I've, I've seen behind the curtain with this stuff. I get to look at the world, the inner world and the outer world of what a lot of these people talk about. And there is a, a big imposter syndrome that goes around because they know it was given to them so easily, this fame, the millions of followers. It was given to them essentially, and this is the big lie about reality TV, like they don't deserve it. No one deserves it. Like Elon Musk deserves it. Conor McGregor yeah. deserves it. You know, they deserve yeah. tens of millions of followers because they've yeah. done something. They've become yeah. someone. Their fame is a byproduct of their success, not the reason for it. Cart before horse again. Uh, this is so interesting. And um, so when we when we you know, this is going back in time and I forget how old I'm getting. But I first noticed this with Paris Hilton 
where I'm like, my goodness, she's one of the first people I've seen since some of these 70s people who's famous for being famous. Just a celebrity, just like a, just like a queen used to be. And then the Kardashians and then reality television. And there was research done by Dr. Drew Pinsky, who's an American like CNN psychologist guy and a guy, Mark Young, is a professor at Southern Cal, where they gave the narcissistic personality inventory to 150 or so celebrities on the show. Great study. And what I loved about it is at the end, they sort of said, well, here are the scores and celebrities are, you know, relatively high, but the highest scores were reality, reality television. And what's interesting at the time was like, well, these are people who are famous, but they're famous for not doing anything. They're just famous for being famous. And so then the question is, who's lining up for this? Like, what's the, what are you lining up for? I mean, I, what do you, what are people lining up for with reality television? Is it the fame or is that fame a launch pad for Sadly, something I, else? I, I wondered about this. Um, when I went into Love Island, which was the second reality TV show I did, there was only two people out of the entire cast when I went on who weren't either unemployed or self-employed. They didn't want reality TV to be a springboard for their career. They wanted it to be their career. This is my opportunity to be special. I've always felt like, because everybody, I think, in their heart of hearts feels like they're unique, right? Because we only get to see our own uh, motivations. We view the nuance of our phenomenological experience from a front row seat. And I only get to see the outward things that you say. And I'm like, well, look at how deep and meaningful and the unique (laughs) thoughts I have. Because I can't see your deep and meaningful and unique thoughts. Um, And I think what it's uh, given people is, look, this is your opportunity to be someone, to be unique, to be adored. Finally, everyone is going to see that that, a very particular combination of thoughts and personalities and traits and everything else that you have, finally you're going to be able to get your pedestal from which you can shout about it. Um, but it's easy come, easy go, you know? Um, and that that is personally where I think, if I was a young person now looking up to uh, role models to want to become like, you need to look at people who are scaling over time, who are leveraging and compounding over time. So you need to be looking toward people like the richest guy on the planet is also going out with Grimes, right? The richest guy on the planet, he's been on Joe Rogan, he's smoking weed, he's living a good life, but he actually adds value. That's the guy that is compounding. The people that are easy come, easy go are hollow. The, The sad point is there was no equivalent in the past because we didn't have such frictionless communication that meant that you couldn't weaponize fame in the same sort of speed that we can now. Oh, right. It is. um, I mean, that's first of all, that's kind of terrifying to me that you're saying that people want fame. But I mean, I I mean, I'll tell you a story. So in my life, uh, I do work and every once in a while I get famous, but it's for like a week. So it'll be like the biggest, I mean, this is going back, like the biggest story in the world for like three days and I'll get a bunch of hate mail and then like I get forgotten. So, so I've gone through the fame cycle, a bunch, micro fame, not real fame. No one knows who I am. Um, but I had one of my grad students do it. We had a paper come out on narcissism and it was narcissism in Facebook. This is way back in the day. We did the first study on that and people were very interested. I said, go be famous. And the first day, she's like, this is awesome. This is so much fun. I'm talking to everybody. And then a day later, she's like, this is (laughs) awful. One day. 
She's like, I've got all this hate mail. Everybody hates me. And I'm like, exactly. One day it, you got you got to ride the fame cycle for one day and realize you don't want to be on it. But how do people know? You know, how would you know what fame is like until you got to do it? And and what they tell kids is, you know, my kids are watching. I mean, my kids are watching like Australian model shows. They're you know, they're probably watching Love Island Australia because the American shows are so boring now. They have to watch the Australian ones. Yeah. You know, the number one uh, aspiring job that primary school children want now is YouTuber. I mean... I mean, I, I, I love the entrepreneurship of that, but it's just it's just not a long term. Like you said, I am very much in investment terms. It's like you could leverage it all on Bitcoin. It might work or you could just slowly invest in, you know, sort of dollar, dollar cost, cost average, average and <laughs> buy, buy some rentals and, you know, kind of wait till you're 40, 50. You have some wealth, but, but it's going to take about 20, 30 years. That's just the nature of it. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, uh, man. There's a there's a lot of different rabbit holes here. Um, let's talk about other people. Perhaps try and give some takeaways, some actionable takeaways. How can we help someone who's a narcissist to change? Like, is that even ethical to to reduce someone's narcissism? Well, I I mean, I don't go around trying to change anybody for anything. That's just my my general principle in life is everyone leaves their own life, and I'm not going to tell anyone what to do. So ethically, that's how I frame it. But um, if people want to change and, and often, you know, when we first started studying narcissism, when I first started doing this, I thought people are narcissistic. They're kind of into it and they don't want to change because it's working for them. And I thought that for a long time. But with the recent research, what we're seeing is that people are narcissistic, often see that their interpersonal antagonism is costing them in life. Basically, they go, my relationships aren't as good as some other people's because I'm kind of an arrogant jerk. And I'd love to be able to have more connection, have more love, especially when you get older. You know, imagine being 50 and single and hitting the bar. I mean, it just it just sounds I'm sorry. I was at a bar like two weeks ago and I'm like, my God, I, I spent my whole life trying to get out of this place. I'm not coming back. You know, I just, uh, um, but uh, but but so they so there's this realization. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, Therapy seems to work for narcissism. I didn't think that at first. It seems to work, but the challenge is that people have to stick with it. And what you see with people who are narcissistic, they go into therapy and they go, this isn't working for me. This person doesn't get how unique and special I am. So one thing is to, um, you know, therapy is a great idea. But the other thing is, and this is what I talk about in the book, is figure out what the problem is. If your problem is love, well, focus on love. You can still be exciting and charismatic and, and, and a killer and an adventurer and try to win and competitive and love. You know, they, they're not these things aren't at war with each other. Um, so my advice is usually don't you know, don't have to worry about your arrogance. Just focus on being connected to people. And if you get that connection, your arrogance will take care of itself. Mm. Is, there a time, is there a time where you would ever prescribe someone to have more narcissism? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I should. I said that too quickly, didn't I? But I, <laughs> I just love I'm free narcissism for everyone. Yeah. Well, so it, like in my job as an academic, the way it works is you're a student and then to go get hired, you have to go around to these different universities and do job talks. So they'll fly you into University of, let's say, Southampton in England, where my advisor is. 
I'd spend two days meeting everybody on campus, meet the dean, meet the faculty, meet the students, and I'd do a talk or two. The people who are successful at that are confident and charismatic and extroverted. They're sort of narcissistic. Um, so you need to have that ability to carry yourself in a confident way to succeed. It's crazy. It's not the way we should select academics. We should select them on what they do, not how they perform in public. But we select them that way. So cases like that where you need public performance, where you need to meet people, um, where you're competitive, I'm like, you got to have some confidence. you got to have some ego. you got to go into it. And so I'm narcissism is not bad. It is a trade-off. And it's really useful in some situations. The problem is when you start thinking you're like, you start owning it, like I'm better than everybody. I really am better. I'm really famous. I'm really more special than these other reality. Like we're not, we're not that great. I mean, they might remember Elon Musk. Not remembering me. Richest, rich, (laughs) richest guy on the planet. Yeah. Right. It's interesting how, especially in this world and you know this is going out on youtube thousands of people are going to be watching this on youtube plus you know even more on audio or listening on audio and one thing that i've realized over the last couple of years especially as video has become frictionless for communicating with people and especially the audio platforms have kicked off precision of speech and confidence in your own words is used as a proxy for truthfulness and capacity So the more able that you are to articulate the things that you're saying, the more truthful people presume the things that you're saying are. And that, it's not quite narcissism, but I think it's the same sort of model or shape in that there is this outward display and someone is making an inference that goes deeper from that. Yes, and um, I mean, that's not unusual. This is what you see with a lot of, you know, added in the old attitudes research is we trust people who are attractive and seem like they're competent, even if it's another area. And also people whose arguments look competent. So there's you can dress up things now and make them appear to be to be, uh, like you said, substantial, but they don't aren't necessarily substantial. But people aren't reading philosophy deeply anymore. Like when I was a kid, I mean, I, I shouldn't, I sound like an old guy. Oh, I'm an old guy. But like, I remember reading Plato's Republic because I was like on vacation. I'm like, what else am I going to do? You know, it's got Plato in two days. I don't get the sense people are doing all that deep philosophical reading because there's too much other things to do. I'm not doing it because I'd rather turn on a YouTube show and check my email in the morning and drink coffee so our, our whole way of conversing has gone from sort of books to these to YouTubes. I love YouTube podca- podcasting and YouTube. I, mean, I think it's a great way to, to have discussions. And I really love what I'm doing. I love the format. But it's very hard for people to know the truth because you're just looking at what's on the surface. And, and people aren't reading the science and they're not reading the philosophy. And I'm like, please do that. You can go to Google Scholar and find everything. You know, everything's out there now. Read. I wonder what is going to happen long term with this it really does feel like the structure of narcissism this um have you heard of the term fronting do you know what fronting is with people like opposers kind of is yeah, that- kind of it's it's basically narcissism it, it would be narcissism that was unjustified so it would be all show no grow basically okay okay and, and um it does really feel like i don't know whether it's peaked 
I think the pandemic's definitely put a dampener on it. You know, there's there's only yeah. so much that you can flex when you're locked down in your house or got to wear a mask when you're outside. But it definitely felt for a long time throughout the back end of sort of the 2010s that this was really picking up speed, that it was more about the transactional, transient nature of how flash and how quick-witted you could be. Even when you think about public intellectuals now, so let's think about Jordan Peterson or Ben Shapiro, two sort of popular public intellectuals. Yeah. Um, both of those guys, their highest levels of popularity are reached when they dunk on someone on TV because of them being quick-witted and Ben Shapiro saying, well, why aren't you 60? Or Jordan <laughs> Peterson like, ha, gotcha-ing. Like the, those guys have done, Shapiro slightly less because he's not an academic, but he's, you know, he's a lawyer. He's a, got a doctor of law. Uh, and Jordan Peterson has been lecturing in psychology for years. He's a clinical yeah. uh, psychiatrist, right? He didn't get famous for doing that. He got famous for like the flashy, charismatic, gotcha moment. Um, yeah. And because of that race to the bottom, I wonder, I wonder what is going to happen long term. Like, I'm, I'm so fascinated for the the next decade. I think yeah. technology is going to be interesting to see what direction that goes in automation loss of meaning this anomie normlessness loss of traditions let's bundle all of this together right increasingly secular society uh people getting married later fewer people having children fewer people getting married women having careers right through and not having children like man this next 10 years is going to be i think it's going to be like nothing else i um i follow all those the data on marriage and childlessness. And I see a huge amount of atomization, like just people isolated and living alone and trying to find meaning on their own. And, and we've been writing about this a long time, but just sort of this rampant individualism, but we got rid of religion. So there's no more religion. And so what happens is you have this space. So what comes in? Well, there's been this huge interest in spirituality that's come in huge. I mean, it's just it, it, like the psychedelic work. I mean, that is, that is enormous now because they got rid of religion. You know, so people are jumping on all sorts of stuff to fill it up. And the other thing I, I guess is where I wonder is where the hell are people going to find meaning? Like if you have a world that's all just networks and atoms, where do you find meaning? If you get rid of religion, you get rid of tradition and you don't have kids. When you have kids, you have to redo everything. So when you have kids, you're like, oh, I got to take my kids to church. I haven't been to church in 20 years, but I'm going to go back. Oh, man, I got to go to the local school. And then you're walking your kid down the street and you're talking, you know, so having kids re-socializes people to engage in society. But if you have half or a third, you know, a third or half or more of the people, not even chill, children, they never engage. It's just they're just gone. I don't know. I mean, it, it's it. And, and I would throw out two other things just to to um, um, the other thing that I think is an issue is we're all, all on social media. And we feel like we're talking to each other on social media, like I'm having a discussion with you. But really what we're doing is we're making networks in a giant super brain, a giant super association network. Like Twitter's a giant super association network. Association networks are like dumb brains. They're like the dumb stereotyping part of your brain you have that makes quick decisions and, and stereotypes and heuristics, but it doesn't think clearly. And we've created like a massive dumb brain. And, and we think we're engaging with people, but we're not. I, and that's how I take it. Like, I think I'm with Twitter having a conversation, but I'm really just a network and a giant meta node. 
and it's and I'm creating something bigger than me. Whereas this feels like an actual discussion. What was the second that, thing? Does that, pardon? What was the second thing? You said you had two things. I probably just totally lost it. I'm sorry. Right. That's, that's, that's absolutely <laughs> that's okay. fine. Yeah, I'm just really like, I just feel like everybody's drifting off and I don't know the forces that are going to bring people together. And it scares me a little bit because there's so much room for forces to come in and start doing that job. Man, we could, this is a whole other podcast episode, but let's think about um, how politically affiliated people are, how vehement they are patriotic about their different political affiliations, uh, movements like BLM, Antifa, how much people support sports teams now. You, people have a religious fervor around their sports team. They do, think about what it used to be. You would go to the same place, the same day of the week, every single week. That would be church on a Sunday while it's the stadium yeah. on a Saturday. Now you don't even, when you can't go see live sport, you can still have your, reddit thread or your whatsapp or telegram or signal group chat with the other fans that are season ticket holders while you watch the game on tv other things that people are, are, are sort of bowing themselves at the church of and i think is a, a good thing is the church of marcus aurelius copies of meditation sold out at the beginning of 2020 sold out couldn't get them on amazon that's, Imagine see, that's selling really a book thing. out and I had... Uh, well, I mean, a book that's a thousand years... I don't know when 2,000 years old. Two and a bit. Is it ne that? Okay. Nearly 2,000 years old. I had Donald Robertson on, Scottish uh, Stoic philosopher and uh, philosophy expert. He's also CBT trained, um, which gives yeah. him a very unique insight. Uh, and he was saying when he talks to uh, people who are trendy and now into Stoicism, a lot of them have actually had CBT before. And he asks them, so why... Why are you so interested in stoicism? And they say, well, what I wanted was like, was like CBT, but bigger. You know, what I wanted was like Western yoga with the spiritual side. Like that's what they want. And what all of these different things, whether it's the sport, whether it's the political movement, whether it's the uh, animal liberation movement, veganism, climate change, I want belonging i want a, a sense of structure i want a linear sense of progression i want an example from role models and people that have come before me that tell me what i'm supposed to do and someone's looking to a roman emperor that's been dead for two thousand years sometimes <laughs> i have i mean i i've kind of vacillate now between like real pessimism and real optimism <laughs> about things because i'm like because i kind of see the old world dying and you see the new world coming in and you just don't know how it's going to work out yeah yeah, yeah. And on one hand, I see people just breaking every I just look around and people are depressed and they're isolated. And what we're doing to people is just I mean, as a psychologist, I, this is God awful. I mean, isolating people, keeping them out of the sun, having them order food. I mean, it's just, geez, it's destroying people. But. I've had so many conversations and the, the interest in, in spiritual growth and, you know, in stoicism or psychedelics or yoga. I mean, this stuff is people are like trying to find something. And so it's this really interesting time where they kind of controlled all the standard stuff and the non-standard stuff's coming in. And I, I don't know how it's going to shake out. I really don't. But we're in a, we're in a major transition. I think that the, the pandemic it's an absolute catastrophe and for the people that have lost loved ones and family members and stuff yeah. it is not good but i really think it put the brakes on some quite malignant parts of modern society as well as i said earlier on you can't flex with a face mask on like you can't show off your brand new rolls royce when you're not allowed out of your house to drive it uh, and i think it's reminded us all you know like how many people have spent more time being in touch with their family because they're terrified they're going to die i'm aware that holding a uh 
viral gun to the head of your mother or grandmother isn't necessarily the best motivation for it, but perhaps it's reminded us exactly what sort of matters. And um, yeah, I, I don't think that a, a pandemic isn't necessarily the optimal strategy for causing that to happen within a civilization. Yeah. But in terms of trying to find silver linings in the cloud, I, I definitely think that that could be one of them. Do you think that, do you, I mean, I get that same sense too. And I, I talk to my kids because I'm always trying to figure out kid culture. So I ask my own kids. I don't really, you know. Um, and I, I noticed this, the, the fashion is really kind of boring, almost 1930s style, a lot of 1980s kind of mom fashion I see him wearing. That's very, I mean, it's, it reminds me of what my mom wore. So I don't hate it, but it's very boring. It's not really showy. So I got the sense that people, like you said, aren't flexing as much. And I wonder if the pandemic hastened the change we were going through or if it's just as soon as the pandemic's gone, it's like a recession when everyone's like, when is a recession? They're like back to simplicity. And then as soon as the recession's over, they're like, after I get back from my holiday in Spain. Yeah, I think a big part uh, of it's that there was something you said earlier on. And I totally forgot to bring this up in a world where everybody is trying to be pushy and showy and flex online and play the look at me role there's a place for narcissism to manifest in someone being overly subtle the person that's like the aloof muse in the corner of the room you know he's got his elephant pants on and a sleeveless t-shirt and he doesn't need that man like you know i'm not part of that man like that's not my thing man like that kind of approach and you think it's just different routes for people trying to find their uniqueness and this is like i am completely folly to, I, I speak to the internet three nights a week in an effort yeah. to do the same thing like i want people to hear what i've got to say but i the more that we become aware of our cognitive biases in this way i think the more that we can get closer to what a true sense of virtue is yeah i um i have you know i i wrestle with my own need for fame and attention a lot and um and one, I can see it. I, I don't know what elephant pants are, but they sound. What are elephant? You know those pants? Uh, when you see people go to Thailand and they're kind of like wide. And oh yeah, the back with the elephants. On. Yes, yes, gotcha. Yeah. So what happens is, like, we're all in this fame status race because that's part of life. We're all in it. We can't not be in it. That's just the nature of it. So what I look at it is like, are you going to get attached to it, or you're not going to get attached to it? If you start getting attached to fame, if you get attached to fame, you're dead. That's what I tell people. Because once you get your fame, you're going to get that hit off the crack pipe, and you're going to say, I need another hit. And you're going to say, I need another hit. And you're only going to get two or three in your life. And then you're going to die alone chasing that fourth hit. Maybe I'd love to hear what you think. But I am like, fame is great, but whatever you do, do not get attached to it. Yeah. Because it ain't. And I don't know what you're, but so I'm tell people it's like, go have fun. But if you start thinking this stuff's real, it'll, it'll eat you alive. For me, uh, so I, I think, sound a little panic there. No, not at all. For, for me, I think it's use the fame, but know that it's not about the fame. Um, there's a, a really, a really good quote. And this is, this is to do with money, but it works for fame as well. Um, making life all about money is like making a road trip all about the gas stations. Like you wouldn't go on a road trip and just visit every different gas station that you could. That's not the point. You need the money to keep going and it's a useful tool to ensure that your road trip doesn't stop. 
but you don't do a tour of gas stations. And I think that you can apply that analogy to fame as well. That fame are these, it's this little bouncing on a, on a trampoline. And each time that you bounce, maybe you can bounce a little bit higher and bounce a little bit higher and bounce a little bit higher. But it's not about the fame. And like, man, this is coming from some of the free charcoal toothpaste on Instagram, the blue tick on Twitter, like all that sort of stuff, like been there, seen it, done it, got the t-shirt. Um, but it's facilitated me to do some things, but I'm so glad that I never started to swallow my own bullshit with regards to that. Uh, and a perfect, yeah. ex- a perfect example that the, the listeners might kind of be able to relate to is that when you're on TV, when you're famous for essentially having done nothing, like being someone, not doing something, all of the praise that you get is hollow. You don't feel love, you feel praise. And the reason is that you're playing a persona. It's a role on TV. Whereas if I get a message from listeners to the show telling me about how it's affected them or something they liked, that like hits me in the feels so hard. This guy came up to me at a, a fitness expo six months after I started the show, and he was telling me that um, his dad had recently passed away. And the episode with Corey Allen that I did, your mm-hmm. buddy yeah. Corey Allen, um, had reminded him that or it made him realize that he was um, distancing himself from his father's death and not fully. Uh, accepting that it happened and that was causing him and his that was causing him to be a bad dad and a bad husband and he came up and he said man I just wanted to told me the story man I just wanted to thank you and so you can imagine with this fitness expo so I've been like going to the gym for months I mean good condition I got my top off everyone's training there's like thousands hundreds of thousands of people there and I'm weeping in front of this guy and I'm like, this guy's just fully torn me up because I was like alpha mailing around, having this good time. And this dude came in and totally sideswiped me like a fucking articulated lorry. And I'm there in front of him and I'm like, pretend, like, do I pretend not to cry? Like, am I trying to yeah. like not do this thing? Like sort of pretending I've got an itch on my head, but yeah. I'm doing it every five seconds. And um, that to me, like that story, it, it, it gave me meaning in a way that I'd never felt before. I hadn't got that when someone goes... Man, you know, when you wore those shorts on Love Island, the orange ones, not the not the light orange ones, the darker orange ones, and you walked down those stairs, it was so meaningful. I was lost and alone and in this place of existential dread. But after I saw you in those shorts, that doesn't happen. Change. I'm going to be shallow. I was like, I'm done, Chris. I'm just going to be shallow. Rest of my life. Doesn't happen, right? No. Yeah. Man, yeah. Keith. But, but, but this is a th- like what you're doing on these podcasts is authentic is what it sounds like. You can't talk for this and, long and not and not be man. Like if you if you tried to play persona for 4 hours a week, you would be fully exhausted. Right. And so that's what I I really enjoy podcasting and I don't really talk to media. I mean not that they're asking me to talk to them, but <laughs> but I I don't find it that useful, but I find these more useful because they seem more authentic. Because like you said, you can't really fake it for an hour. That's interesting to hear. I I never could act. I just couldn't I can't really fake it at all. I mean I can put on a I can do an act. It's performance, but it's close to truth, you know. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think whereas- I, th- I think that this movement that we've got here towards stoicism, towards spirituality, towards psychedelics, consumption of long-form content, people learning how to read again. There's like a reading movement. There's even a bookstagram movement on Instagram, which is people who basically run book clubs 
and talk about the books that they're reading and then do book summaries on Instagram as well. And they all discuss it in the comments below. Uh, get better with books. Jim Mullane, my buddy, has been on the show. Fantastic guy. And um, all of this, I think, is a counterculture movement. I think it's people realizing that the hypernormal stimuli and the dopamine uh, manipulation that we're having, people want less, oddly. For the first time in ever, people want less. I, um, well, it, I, I, when I, you know, I'll put on like Bob Dylan albums from the sixties sometimes and they make sense. That's how crazy things are. I'm like, God, I finally understood subterranean's homesick blues in 2021. You know, that's how crazy it is. But, um, I sense this counterculture too. And I really glad you say it. But what's interesting to me is the people doing the psychedelics aren't the same people that were doing them when I was at Berkeley they're like the country guys and the, and the folk guy. It's a weird, it's weird. It's like, it's the, it's the, it's like the sides kind of changed in a way. And, um, and so it's very hard to see, you know, but it's, but it's happening and it's really, it's just, anyway, it's very powerful. I don't know how this is going to shake out, but what you're saying makes me feel good next, that people are thinking. Next decade's going to be interesting. Keith, today's been awesome, man. The new science of narcissism will be linked in the show notes below on Amazon. Where else do you want to send people? Oh, any place. <laughs> WKeithCampbell.com, basically. I'm not very good at fame. I apologize. That's, hey, just Google me. That's fine. I'll, uh, I'll throw what I can find if you want. Little <laughs> tiny little fragments of your uh, tiny fragments digital of ghost internet. platform that you've got. I'll uh, I'll get them and I'll throw them in the show notes below. <laughs> Thank you very much for today, mate. Thank you. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget that you might be listening but not subscribed. Just. Navigate your thumb to the little podcast app you're using and hit that subscribe button. It means that you will not miss any episodes when I upload them Monday, Thursday and Saturday every week. And it's a wonderful gift for me. So if you're feeling particularly nice today, or even if you're not, go press subscribe. Peace.